So we want to turn to Acts this morning, the, the uh, book of Acts, right after the four Gospels. We have this incredible book that we started a few uh, weeks ago, and we're going to be studying this morning the very last part of Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 26, and I've entitled the sermon this morning as uh, that title there that you see, Making the Right Choice, Making the Right Choice. And we're talking about this morning, really, how uh, Judas had hanged himself and the disciples now have to replace that office. And so that's where we pick up. They've got to make the right choice. And so we'll start in verse 20, and I'll read down to verse 26. Here's what Luke, the author of Acts, writes. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it. And let another take his place or take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they put forth two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Father, we pray this morning that you would allow us to look here at your word in a way that would help us learn how to make wise decisions. God, we're a little bit um, pondering exactly what happened here with the casting of lots, but we also want to be careful that we're following objective principles in your word that would help us make choices in life that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And so would you be with us today as we dive into this topic and into this text, that it would give us light and it would give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the way that some people attempt to make the right decision in their life could sometimes, you know, you hear stories about how people make a decision, and sometimes the stories can be a little bit funny, a little bit mystical even, and I think if you put some stories together, you could make a great television series called That's Unbelievable. For example, maybe you've heard about the lady who received a brochure about traveling to the Holy Land, and she wanted to go to Israel. She had the time, she had the money, and she had the energy, but she just wasn't sure if it was God's will for her to go to Israel or not. So she read the pamphlet about the tour, and it would begin with a flight on a 747 jumbo jet. So that night she went to sleep. She tossed and turned through the night, wondering if it was God's will for her to go to Israel. And in the morning when she woke up, she looked at the digital clock and it read 747. And she took it that that was God's will speaking to her that she was now to go to the Holy Land. I don't know about you, but I'm saying that's unbelievable, right? That she would come to that conclusion. Another experience that would make this unbelievable TV series come to life is the true story of a pastor who previously served as a deacon for a number of years, and he was then called into full-time ministry. He was ordained, he finished seminary, and finally was into the pastorate when he began to be tempted to buy a doctorate from a degree place online. And uh, you, you're not going to believe this, but he was reading in his King James Bible, an older translation in 1 Timothy 3.13, and he got his answer from God. 
That verse reads in the King James, for they that used the office of deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree. (laughs) So he went out and bought himself a doctorate. A college sophomore was greatly in need of a new car, and he didn't know what God's will would be for him in making the right choice. And so he tossed and turned throughout the night, and everything he dreamed that night was in yellow. He woke up the next morning early to begin the hunt through every used car lot in town, and you guessed it, he bought a yellow car. It was yellow inside and out, and he was convinced that it was God's will for him. Well, it turned out to be a lemon. (laughs) I know of a pastor who was involved in marriage counseling at Grace Community Church years ago, who after receiving and taking data, began to uh, try to diagnose the problem in the marriage and just simply asked the question, how did you guys decide to get married to each other anyway? They had a ton of problems and conflicts. And so the wife reported to him that at the time they were attending a church, the time when they got married, they were attending a church where a pastor had encouraged the husband to name what he wanted, to claim it, and to march around it seven times like Joshua's army did around the city of Jericho. And not knowing about this council, when he asked her for her hand in marriage, she hesitated. And so the young man stood up and he marched around his girlfriend seven times. And then he got down on his knee and popped the question again. The woman said that she felt warm, tingly, and lightheaded, and was even a little dizzy. But she said yes. And they've been having marriage problems ever since. That's unbelievable. Master students, please take to heart. That is not the way for you to find your wife. All right. I'm sure you've heard about maybe the amazing open window method of getting God's will from the Bible. A fellow sits by the window and a strong breeze blows through the pages and he puts his finger on the verse as he's waiting for his answer from God. The first verse that he finds reads, Judas went out and hanged himself. (laughs) So he does it again while the wind blows and flips through a few more pages. And the next verse that he comes to says, go thou and do likewise. Completely in disarray, he does it one more time and finds the scripture verse that says, whatever thou doest, doest quickly. (laughs) Knowing and doing the will of God can be very challenging. And most Christians today look for signs and wonders in order to direct them to make the right choice. And because of our biblically illiterate society, many Christians, if they're totally honest, have resorted at some point to feelings and emotions and experiences, what I would call mysticism, in order to try to figure out God's will. In fact, I would define mysticism in this category would simply be applying subjectivity to the spiritual realm. It includes looking for the voice of God and specific directions from God in your personal experiences, in your feelings, in your impressions, and in your gut level haunches, which are all categorized as subjective data. While these subjective influences are real, like we have feelings and we have emotions and we get a hunch sometimes, those are real things. I I believe that they should never be trusted as a means of God's authoritative revelation. Surely the will of God 
could not be reduced to digital clocks, Bible verses stripped out of context, dreams are marching around the things that you want seven times. God's will is not lost, but it's found in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. I would say that the Bible is totally sufficient and able to address any and every issue in life. If not directly, then indirectly by giving wisdom which God reveals in his word. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God's will is revealed through his objective word, which is the supreme authority and influence over every decision in life for the believer who wants to make the right choice and honor God. Many times we want a specific answer to a specific question, such as, well, where should I go to school? You know, I, I want to know what God thinks about my school choice and, and what job should I take? You know, I'm about to graduate and I would say to you, take any job. I just take any job. Well, not any job, but you need to have a job, you know, but these questions come up. Who should I marry? You know, what, what house should I buy? And I would suggest to you this morning, maybe instead of posing the question, what is God's will for my life? We should ask, what is God's will? Period. Too many times we personalize it by saying, well, what is God's will for my life in this personal situation or in this personal situation? And I would like to redirect you to maybe ask a better question again, which is just what is God's will? In other words, what does God's word say? What does it say? God has never promised in his word to give you specific direction in a mystical way, but rather to provide objective principles through his word, which relate to your decision. I believe that when addressing this uh, subject of God's will, I found it to be extremely helpful and appropriately biblical to understand God's will in two categories. The first category is what I call God's sovereign will. Some people call it God's decretive will, like God's decrees, or his secret will, his sovereign will. And I would define God's sovereign will as God's ultimate will, which is secured in heaven from eternity past, is being played out in the present through his divine power and providence, in which cannot be thwarted, diverted, or stopped by any power in the universe. In other words, if God's ordained it, it's going to happen. And it doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. God is sovereign over all things. And God's sovereignty includes suffering. And it includes temptation. And it even includes the sinful acts of men. And while God is not the author or the agent of sin, he still allows it. And I would go as far as to say that he ordains that it would come to pass to serve his higher purposes contained in his decrees. And you cannot know God's sovereign will until it happens. And before it happens, it is secret and belongs only to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so we know that God's sovereign will includes insignificant things like a bug being smashed against your windshield. And it also includes extremely important things like the salvation of your soul and the history of the world. 
And you know that God is sovereign over all of these things because that's what the Bible teaches us. And if, if you were to fight for a God who's not sovereign over everything, then you're really serving a God who's not truly sovereign. God is either sovereign over all or he's not sovereign at all. Genesis 50, 20 says, as for me, you meant evil against me. As for you, you meant evil against me, Joseph, speaking to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Just one of many examples of man meant it for evil, but God meant for that to happen for good. In other words, God's will that Joseph was sold into slavery. It was the way that God was going to preserve his people. Genesis 50, 20 goes on to say, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we understand, again, there's a sovereign aspect to God's will. That's Romans 8, 28, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so that's God's sovereign will, but I think we should also recognize the category of what I call God's moral will. So his sovereign will and his moral will, some people call his moral will his directive will or his preceptive will. It's his moral will as revealed in scripture. God's moral will is God's good, lawful, and directional will that he sets forth in the Bible for us to follow. It is revealed through direct commands and through precepts, which are biblically derived principles. And we can know God's directive will ahead of time because he's already revealed it to us in scripture. So this directive will or this, this will of God, this moral will, is more about what is right and wrong. Not necessarily about making a decision about what college to go to, but whether or not I should tell the truth or tell a lie, or whether or not I should sleep with my girlfriend or stay pure till I get married. These things are revealed clearly in the scripture, that same verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that I told you starts off talking about God's sovereign will when it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Then it goes on to talk about God's moral will when the verse continues to say, but the things that are revealed, which is revealed through God's word, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. So there's some things about God's will that we don't know and understand yet. There's some things about God's will that we do know and understand as it's revealed in the Bible, and we're to walk in obedience to those things. We know from the Bible that it is God's will that we repent 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. It is God's will that we submit, Ephesians 6, 6. It is God's will that we proclaim Christ, Colossians 4, 12 and 1, 28. It is God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It's God's will that we renew our minds, Romans 12, 1 through 2. So in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at making the right choice, and interestingly enough, the disciples are at a crossroads. And Judas had hung himself. The disciples needed to replace him. Peter's already told us in the sacred assembly there that was gathered in the upper room that scripture must be fulfilled. And then Peter quotes here in verse 20 from Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8, when he says here in verse 20, for this is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and there be no one dwelling 
dwell on it. And so that would be a reference to Judas killing himself, them taking the money that he had, uh, that he had betrayed Christ with, bought a field of blood that was going to be a desolate place, and that is a reference to that verse. And then the next verse, again, Psalm 109, verse 8, quoted at the end of Acts 1.20, says, let another take his office. And so we know that it's God's decretive will in scripture that another person should take his office. And the question that is being asked is, well, who will this new apostle be? And that's what verses 21 through 26 are all about because the disciples want to make the right choice. And so today, I'm just gonna give you two simple headings here for the rest of our message together. Number one, how did the disciples make their decision and then number two, how do you make decisions today? Let's start off with number one, how did the disciples make their decision? We'll see here in verses 21 through 26, that we'll see there are three qualifications that are given by which the disciples are going to make this choice. And then we'll ultimately see God the Father is going to make his choice in a sovereign way. So here we go. The three qualifications are this. A, he was with Jesus throughout his ministry. That was one of the qualifications for this man. He had to have been with Jesus throughout his ministry. Notice how it says that in verse 21. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up in, uh, when he was taken up from us. And so the first qualification they decided, well, this guy had to have been like one of us like not one of the 12, because they're replacing one of the 12, who was the apostate, which is Judas. And so whoever this next disciple would be, he would be a man who would have been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. And while Jesus had selected 12 men to be appointed as apostles, there were many other close associates who were part of that assembly that we read about even last week of the 120 in the upper room. So maybe it was one of those guys, or you might even remember Jesus earlier had actually sent out the 70 or the 72, which is recorded in Luke 10, one through two. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, other translations say 70, so 70 or 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to God, the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. And so I'm thinking that this passage shows that there are many other places in the Bible remember where it's not just Jesus and the 12, but it's Jesus and the 12, and then there's the 70. And then there's 120, and it's likely that this man that's going to replace uh, Judas was going to be a person who would have been like that. You, you might even remember we talked about how Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, was not one of the 12. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and the author of this book, Acts, was also not one of the 12. So there are many other close associates, and most likely it would have been a man like this, possibly one of the 70, or maybe even one of the 120 people waiting in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to come with power. This person would have, according to verse 21, he would have accompanied us. You see that word there? He would have accompanied us, and that word accompanied means to be assembled together with. 
They would have even traveled with him. They would have even, uh, there, there would have been an intimate relationship with. That's what a company means, to be even traveling together in an intimate relationship, to be assembled together with the other disciples. And there, there would have been, uh, he would have been with them the whole time. This would not have been a person who was in and then he was out, some guy on the peripheral. This would not have been a fair-weathered Christian. No, no, this person was there for the long haul. This person was there, most likely, when Jesus fed the 5,000, and he was there when Jesus was almost thrown off a cliff in Nazareth. This man would have been there when Jesus healed the lame man who was lowered down through the roof. And he would have been there when Jesus passed through the crowd before, because his time had not yet come. This man would have likely been there when the crowd sang Hosanna at the entrance of the triumphal entry. And he would have also been there, at least in the vicinity, when Jesus was crucified on the cross. They were there, and verse 21 says that they were there all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Now, I don't know about you this morning, but I just kind of like the thought of that, the thought that this man was there all the time. He was there in the ups and the downs, and he was there all throughout that ministry as close as he could be. He may not have been one of the 12 original apostles, but he was there close by. And there's just something about that that makes me want to be a man like that, a man who wants to be around Jesus all the time. I, I want to be with him when I'm at work. And I want to be with him when I'm at home. Uh, you should want Jesus with you when you're at school. And you should want Jesus with you when you're doing your homework. You should want Jesus with you when you're watching TV. And you should want Jesus with you when you're walking around the block. You should want to be with Christ all the time. Now, I know he dwells in us if you're a Christian. But there's also just this aspect of I want to be close to Jesus. So this, this man that's going to replace Judas was a man like that. He was a man who wasn't just a, a Christian on Sundays. He wasn't just acting Christian like when he's reading his Bible in the morning. He's a Christian through and through from early in the day till late at night. And he's with Christ all the time. Verse 22 talks about how this disciple would replace Judas needed to be with Jesus from, look at it, verse 22, from the beginning. And he's talking here about the baptism of John the Baptist. This is a reference to John the Baptist there from the beginning of the baptism of John. You might remember that Mark chapter 1 records that for us when it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That was to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist was going to come before Christ. John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. And he's like, man, you think I'm a good preacher? Wait till you hear my cousin. He's coming and he's going to do things that you can't even imagine. So John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so this disciple would have been there. He says that he's been there ever since the baptism of John the Baptist. So he would have been at the very beginning of Christ's ministry. And part of the reason I think that's so important and why they mention it here is that Mark chapter 1 goes on to say, in all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, Jerusalem were going out to him, going out to John the Baptist, to be baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. He must have been like a hippie, 
right? But this guy was radical for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was preaching, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've been baptizing you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then listen to what happens. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is one of the two or three times where the voice of God comes from heaven and makes an important announcement about his affirmation of his son. It wasn't just John the Baptist who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was God the Father out of heaven speaking up about his son. It was the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. This was an important moment in the history of Christ's ministry because this is the inauguration of Jesus going public with who he is. And he continues his ministry for another three, three and a half years. And so this man who's going to replace Judas, would have been there. He would have witnessed that. He would have heard the voice of God. He would have known that Jesus Christ indeed is the Messiah. And not only this, this new disciple was there at the beginning. He was there, the verse 22 says, he was there at the very end when Jesus was taken up from us. He would have been there at the ascension. He would have heard and understood the great commission where Jesus said before he ascended, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This, this man who's going to replace Judas, would have likely heard that. He was there at the ascension when Jesus said, and you will receive power. You'll receive what? Power. All right, there you go. I'm just making sure you remember from a couple of weeks ago. I had to take you through a little exercise there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we're talking about a man who witnessed the very beginning of Christ's ministry at John's baptism. We're talking about a man who was there at the ascension and would have heard the Great Commission, knowing that he would also receive power, being filled with the Holy Spirit, to be that kind of witness that God had called him to be. And I think that what Luke is making clear for us in our passage this morning is that this new disciple could not just be an acquaintance— he was intimately involved. He wasn't just a member of the early church. He was a servant in the early church. This man was not untested in his character and in his gifting, but he was a man of character and ability. And please note also from verse 21 that it says one of the men, one of the men. The Bible is not chauvinistic. But the Bible is extremely clear. Peter did not tell the disciples to look for a woman. But Peter told the disciples to look for a man. And we know that men and women are created equal before God in our value and in our dignity. Can I get an amen to that? Men and women are created equal before God in our value and in our dignity. But we have different roles and responsibilities both at church and at home. 
And God chose 12 men to be apostles. In Acts 6, the church chose seven men to be the first deacons of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, the elders of the church are to be men. And so again, it's not a chauvinistic play that God's making. We're created equal before God in value and dignity, but we just have different roles and responsibilities. So he was telling the apostles, we got to find a man. That's significant because they're holding true to the order of how the church was to be structured. And so this first qualification for this man would be that he's a man and that he was there with Jesus from the beginning of the ministry until the end. All right. The second qualification is this. He had to be a witness to the resurrection. That's already hinted at when we say he was there at the ascension. So we know he's resurrected, but it is said clearly in verse 22 towards the end when it says one of the men must come with us. And then it says a witness to his resurrection. And this is exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8 again about receiving power so that you could become my witnesses. He had to have been a witness to Christ, a witness to Christ's resurrection. He was to be a witness to the Great Commission, carrying out the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead so that people were being baptized, discipled, and adhering to all the teaching of Christ. And this is what we see in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. The resurrection becomes a focal point, a center point. It's all about the resurrection of Christ. That's what we're to be a testimony to, Acts 4.33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This is what Peter attested to later in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A little later, this is exactly what Paul preached about. Now, I would remind you, 1 Corinthians 15.1, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you and believed in, in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So all I'm trying to say is that the resurrection is obviously a key component of our Christian faith. And I just want to know from you this morning, are you a witness to the resurrection? Are you a witness to the resurrection of Christ? Not just on Easter Sunday, but are you a witness to the resurrection every day? Are you more known for your love for the resurrected Savior or for your favorite Bible teacher? Are you more known for your love for the resurrected Savior or for your favorite author? Are you more known for your love for the resurrected Savior or for your favorite worship song? Make sure that you fall in love with Christ and not with the things that surround Christ. Make sure that you fall in love with Jesus and not with conservative politics. Make sure that you fall in love with Jesus and not with homeschooling or Christian schooling or whoever's in love with the public school. I don't know anyone. But (laughs) make sure that you're in love with Christ. That's what it's about. It's about the resurrection. And if we're not careful in times like these, we start to go off on tangents. We're going over here and over there. And it's like, no, no, I want to be a witness to the resurrection. Did you know that Christ was raised from the dead? 
Uh, I just had a businessman tell me this week how he was at, at, a, uh, at a meeting with some other businessmen and somebody was talking about their business and this and that. And he said, that's just the gospel truth or something like that. And our, our, our church member said, no, 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 that, let me tell you what the gospel is. And he went on to share the gospel is that God sent his only son to down the cross for sinners like you and me, and that we deserve the judgment of God and the wrath of God. But because God loved the world so much, he sent his son Christ who died on a cross and took the sins of the world, of those that would repent and believe. And, and if you would repent and turn from your sins and turn to Christ, you could be saved. That's the gospel. And that's what we're a witness to. Before we go off on all our other particulars, and, and get fired up about all our other podcasts uh, that talk about all kinds of things that are important. In fact, we had a really great, inc incredible equipping hour this week, last week, the week before. I, I, I have noticed a trend. The marijuana class was packed. <laughs> last week is a little less. This week's a little less. So come back. Come back to equipping hour, 815. Next week, we're talking about abortion. We'd love for you to be with us just as we're studying that from a biblical point of view. But I'm just saying, uh, what am I saying? Like, we got to be preaching the gospel, right? Those other, things, those other things are important. We have classes on them. We want to talk about them. They matter to our country, to our world. Politics is important. So please understand, I'm not saying that's all a wash. But I'm saying make sure that what's resurrected in your heart is a resurrected Savior. And that as you're a witness going out to accomplish the Great Commission, you're preaching the resurrection. Just like say it. People say to people, Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's not something we typically say to our neighbor. We're just like, oh, you want to come visit our church? Our church is awesome. We have a drummer. <laughs> she come hear the drums. It's like, no. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ, my Savior. He was raised from the dead. Why not just start there? Like, just go for broke telling people about the resurrection. That's our calling. That's what this man was to be able to do because he was actually a personal witness to it. He might have came to the tomb that morning. He might have been there when Jesus walked through the walls and showed up in the room and he ate and he might have seen Thomas put his fingers in his hands. This man would have been somebody who said, I was there. I'm a witness to the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Third qualification of this replacement disciple or apostle would be this. He was chosen by God. He was chosen by God, verses 23 through 26. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting, okay? So they put forward two men. Two men fit these qualifications. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So the two men are Barsabbas and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from Judas, turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So we know that ultimately this man, this replacement, was going to be chosen by God. There were actually two men who met those requirements of, of, of being there in the beginning with Jesus in his ministry, being there at the end as his ascension, being a witness to the resurrection. There was Joseph Barsabbas, Justice, all the same name, and then there is Matthias. And nothing is known of either individual. They are not referred to by name anywhere else in the Bible outside of this passage. And so how will the disciples determine which one to pick? 
Answer, they don't. They leave it up to God. Now notice they did pray in verse 24. It says they prayed and said, you, O Lord, no. They entrusted the decision unto the Lord. They knew that God would make it known to them which one of these two men was to take Judas's place. And they acknowledged in their prayer that God knows the hearts of all. And we know that from God's word. First Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his outer appearance when Samuel was going to go anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the new king of Israel. And Eliab came before him, the oldest, tallest, strong, handsome, good-looking guy. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't look at his appearance because why? The Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We also know that Romans 8, 27 says, and he who searches hearts knows what, it is in, what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints in according to God's will. Here's what I'm saying. The Lord knows the hearts of all people and he knows where and how he wants to employ us for his service. Nowhere in the text does it say, Barsabbas was a bad man, another Judas in the making. And that the reason that God chose Matthias was because Barsabbas was, 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 was an evil man. It, that's not what the text says. It just says both men were probably qualified. Both men would have potentially served. But God chose one. And he chose one in a sovereign way. And God does that all the time by his providence and by what comes to pass. We don't know it ahead of time. But after it happens, we know this is what God ordained because this is what is happening. He employs us as he wants in his service. God knew that he wanted me to be your pastor. God knew that he wanted and appointed each and every elder of this church. God knew and placed you in that position where you serve as a, as a leader or as a, as a ministry participant. God knows and places you exactly where he wants. And I'm telling you right now, he wants all of you to be serving somewhere because that's what the Bible teaches, that we're to serve Christ. Man may plan his ways, but it is the Lord who directs our steps. Furthermore, verse 25 makes it clear that this replacement disciple was to be considered as an apostle. He was to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from Judas, which Judas turned aside and he went to his own place. And so we read here, we know that this official number of apostles was indeed to be 12. Do you remember when Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 19, 27, uh, P Peter was interacting with Jesus and he said, see, we have left everything and followed you. Uh, what will we have in return? Jesus's answer was, he said to him, truly I say to you, Matthew 19, 28, I, I, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we understand that Jesus had already told the disciples, look, you disciples, the 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones. Well, Judas is gone. Most likely, he's in hell. So who is going to be this 12th man to sit on this 12th throne? And we also know from Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. So we understand that one of these would be removed and someone else would take his place. Now, interestingly enough, some people would say here that the disciples made a mistake. 
If you read the commentaries, it's discussed all over the place. Maybe the disciples made a mistake because this person that should have taken Judas's place, some commentators say, that should have been the Apostle Paul. So since Apostle Paul was such, a, such an incredible part of the New Testament who wrote 13 epistles and, and was so outspoken about so many things, some commentators would say, well, we think the disciples made a mistake because that's supposed to be Paul. Now they, you know, they kind of short circuit this thing and they choose Matthias instead. And, and they think that Peter might have been mistaken in his interpretation of those verses and chose too quickly. Now, I would say to you, in answer to that question, nothing in this passage indicates that their actions were wrong. It is incomprehensible that God would have allowed such a man-centered mistake at such a critical point of transition at the early church. If it had been the wrong course of action, I believe that God would have confronted the apostles directly like he had already confronted, Jesus confronted Peter when he said, get thee behind me, Satan. And I would say to you that Jesus Christ appointed Matthias just as he had picked and appointed the other 11. This was not by accident or by the will of man, but by the will of God. And while Paul was in no way inferior to the 12, he was not one of their number. By his own admission, Paul said that he was untimely born. Paul was an apostle. He was not one of the 12 apostles. Paul was a different apostle, but not inferior to the 12. And Paul says as much, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, I have been a fool, you force me to it, for I ought to have been commanded by you, but I was not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. So in that context, you just say, hey, I'm not one of the original 12, but I still have biblical authority to say what I need to say to the church at Corinth. Paul was also known as an apostle to the Gentiles, where the original 12 were first to be apostles to the Jews. The 12 apostles were to focus first on the Jew and then to the Greek. Romans 1.16 talks about that. So the question that we're really getting to, though, is this. How is it that God made his choice known to the disciples of choosing Matthias? And that's where we look again at verse 26, where it says, And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So what is that talking about? Well, casting lots, believe it or not, was an acceptable Old Testament method of determining God's will. You've probably heard Proverbs 16:33, which says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, you may also be aware that in the Old Testament, the priests at times used Urim and Thummim, these two types of stones that are mentioned several places in the Old Testament to determine God's will. The Urim and Thummim were gemstones that were carried by the high priest of Israel on his ephod or vest around his priestly garments, and they were occasionally used by the high priest to determine God's will in certain situations. And some proposed that God would cause the Urim and Thummim to light up in varying patterns to reveal his decisions. Others propose that somehow these stones were kept in a pouch and they were marked in a certain way, engraved maybe by symbols that would communicate yes and communicate no. And following the pattern, 
of the Old Testament, the apostles cast lots to determine which of the two candidates was to fulfill Judas's place. Most likely, they had associated one candidate with one stone and marked it in a certain way, and the other candidate with the other stone. Now, again, I know this sounds a lot like chance or like gambling, but what you have to understand is that here, the priest of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament believed in the sovereignty of God. They well knew Psalm 115, the truth of that Psalm, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Furthermore, the casting of lots was never to decide moral decisions or decisions between right and wrong. Those decisions were made on direct revelation from God and from his word. The casting of lots was only used in order to make a a wisdom decision that they weren't fully aware and know because this was God's secret will. And so they were, the casting of the lots was used to acknowledge that it is really God who is 100% sovereign over every decision. And so when they didn't know what to do, they would pray, as they did here in verse 24, they prayed, and then they would seek the Lord, and then on occasion they would indeed cast lots. Also, I want to just make the point here that this is the last time that this method for decision-making was used in the Bible. I believe that after God gave his Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to the point to where we can make God-honoring decisions without the need of casting lots anymore, or setting up circumstances anymore, or setting out a fleece anymore. I believe that when the Holy Spirit came, we are now capable of making God-honoring decisions, and in no way do we need some type of mystical revelation. Now, in this case, the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And this does not mean that, again, Justice was a bad man, uh, Barsabbas was a bad man. This is simply, uh, it doesn't even necessarily mean he was disqualified. This does not even mean that the decision for, uh, for the other guy would have completely contradicted God's word because in God's word, it was nowhere revealed. It was supposed to be one man or the other. Just maybe the qualifications were hinted at. It, it just simply means that a choice had to be made and the apostles, uh, the apostles here trusted that God would sovereignly direct them to his choice for that office. So here's what I'm saying. We look back at the Urim and Thummim, at Thummim, and we look back at the casting of lots, and we're like, huh, that's kind of cool. And then we don't do it, all right? Because nowhere in the Bible is it like, oh, you need to just cast lots. You know, when you're trying to pick a pastor, just cast lots. When you're trying to decide what car to buy, just cast lots. You know, when you're trying to make decisions today, I would suggest there's a better way to cast lots. The Bible actually never teaches the New Testament believer that this is an appropriate, ongoing way of decision-making. So I would like to take just a couple minutes and say, well, how do we make decisions today? Since you told us we can't cast lots and we shouldn't be setting out a fleece and just looking for a sign, how should you make decisions today? That's our second heading. Let me just give you a five-step process for making wise, God-honoring decisions. You ready? Number one, or A, you need to be saved and be sanctified. If you want to make a God-honoring decision, you need to be a Christian If you're not a Christian, how can you make a decision that honors God? And that's why we understand that 
Acts 17.30 says the times, of ignorance, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It is God's will that people be saved. And it is not your job to determine who is or is not going to be one of his elect. Rather, it is your job to call all people everywhere to repent. And so, and it is also our job in a sense that we would repent, that when we hear the gospel preach, that we would respond to it in, in, in love and in repentance and in faith. And at the same time, you can't. In your depravity, you don't have the ability to repent without the spirit of God quickening your soul. And so it's this understanding here that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so you must repent and be born again by faith. And that's all a gift of God. And then as a Christian, I said here in this point, you've got to be saved and be sanctified. So as you're a Christian, you, if you want to know the will of God, you need to be knowing and loving God's word. You have to know the word of God. I would just make it really simple. God's will is God's word. You want to know what God's will is for your life and the decisions you make? You need to start with, well, what does God's word have to say? If you're stumbling through life and tossing up uh, periodic prayers in times of, of stress or trouble, and you've never really come to your knees at the foot of the cross and embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Lord of Savior, then you really are never going to know what it is that God wants for your life. But once you've been saved, I just want you to know that it is God's will for you to be sanctified. It is the will of God for you to walk in obedience, for you to be pure and holy, for you to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. It is God's will that you are not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be able to discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the first step in making wise God-honoring decisions is to be saved and to be in the process of sanctification, which means that you're looking to walk in love and in obedience to God's word. Okay, so that just kind of goes without saying. You need to be saved and you need to be walking with God. Number two. The second thing is you need to pray for God's will to be done. To pray for God's will to be done. Again, they prayed here in verse 24, and they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. They were praying to God. We see so many examples of that in the scripture. The Lord's Prayer, uh, also called the Disciples' Prayer in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, when Jesus says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your, what? Your will be done. It's just acknowledging, God, we're praying that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, just saying, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you're in charge. And I know that you've got this. And so I'm just submitting myself and I'm praying for you to do as I know you already will in accordance with your glory and your power. And so in the meantime, as I'm praying, God, help me, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let me present my request and let it be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
So as we're trying to make a decision, we're just like, I'm not going to be anxious about this. I am praying. I'm submitting this to God. I'm going to trust in him that he's going to make it known. I'm also going to pray for wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so pray and express to God that you want to do his will more than anything else in your life. Pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate your mind to understand and apply scripture. Pray for the faith to take God at his word. Pray for wisdom beyond your years of experience. Pray for God to search your heart and to purify your motives. Pray for a submissive will that you would submit your will to God's will. The third step. And God-honoring decision-making would be this, study the Bible. I told you God's will is God's word. You got to come back to the word of God. You can't just be like, well, I'm just going to kind of shut my Bible and go sit under a tree somewhere out at the beach. And I'm just going to pray until God tells me what to do. I hope that you got an open Bible and just like, let me look at this principle. Let me look at this truth. Let me get, 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 get this wisdom from God's word because these principles all are going to come together to help me make the best decision that I can. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now that's for preachers to preach the word. But certainly it's for all people to be like, I need to handle God's word correctly. I don't need to take stuff out of context. I need to study the Bible and understand what is being said in this verse, in this way, that would help me make a right decision. Find out what the Bible says directly and indirectly about the decision that you need to make. You know, you might be trying to, you know, I'm saying sometimes God's word speaks directly and sometimes it's indirectly. For example, let's say that you're trying to decide who to date. And you don't know if you should date this girl or this girl, but one of the girls that you're considering, if you're a guy or if you're a girl, one of the guys you're considering, one of them's a Christian and one's not. (laughs) Well, you can already say, well, I know what God's will on that is because 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be unequally yoked. So if I'm praying about it, I really like this guy, but he's not saved, but he's close, but he is so hot. You know, and here's the nerdy Christian over here, and I got to choose between these two. I can already tell you, God's picking the nerd (laughs) who's in Christ all day over this guy over here who plays soccer really well, but he doesn't know Jesus. All right, that's that's done. It's done. All right. Now let's say, well, Adam, what if it's two Christian guys and one's a nerd and one's cool? Go with the cool guy. All right, go with the cool guy. So I'm just saying there's other, there's also indirect principles, indirect principles at play. Okay. So I'm saying don't, don't date or marry an unbeliever. That's, that's direct. Indirect would be, let's say that you're 17, 18 years old. You're still living at home. You think maybe, do you think just, just maybe you should talk to your mom and dad about it? What a great idea. It's like you have a mom and a dad who love you, who been there who've dated other people and they could tell you good stories and they could tell you bad stories. You think just maybe you should come alongside them and seek their wisdom? And do you think maybe that if your father decides to put his foot down and say, this boy is not a good boy for you to date, do you think just maybe that, that you should listen to that? Because the counsel given in God's word in an indirect way that still applies to your decision-making is simply Ephesians 6, 1. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
It's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth. The, the idea here, that's an indirect principle about dating. It just simply applies to obeying your parents. But if your father and mother felt strong enough to say, hey, we're just not comfortable with this. This can't happen right now. Look, when you move out on your own or whatever, that, that, that later in life, you can make those decisions. But right now, when you're in our home, you just can't do that. And, here, and explain why, mom and dad. You can't just be like, I don't like the guy. You know, like explain the, the issues at hand. And, 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 and I'm saying to the teenager that it would be God's will for you to obey your mom and dad. Because you could be a teenager be like, but that's, what if that's God's one for me? Then you can wait, all right, until it becomes more clear. Until your pastor, that's me, and your youth director, that's Zach, and your parents all line up. And if they're all agreeing, and even your godly aunts and uncles, then you know that maybe God's at work at this. But if all of these people are saying no, particularly your parents, or maybe a pastor who's involved, and just say, hey, this isn't a good thing. You need to abide by that wisdom. I believe that would be an indirect way that God shines light on what his will would be. Let me move on. A fourth step in making a God-honoring decision is this. We're already saying it here. Seek wise counsel. Seek wise counsel. And that can be in addition to your pastor and your parents. Uh, Proverbs 15, or excuse me, Proverbs 1, 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning and let the one who understands obtain guidance. Proverbs eleven fourteen. Where there, uh, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool is right in his own wise, in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. There's just so many Proverbs that just talk about get godly wisdom. Here's what I'm saying. Look for people who are biblically minded, who have been around the church for a while, who have more wisdom and discernment in addition to even your pastors and your parents and your friends. And by the way, if that wise person that you're getting counsel from tells you to ignore your parents, if your parents are standing on biblical principles, then that person's not wise. Right? So finding a wise counsel doesn't mean just someone who agrees with you no matter what. It means that they're standing in accordance with the principles of God's word. And I would suggest to you, don't just ask them, what do you think I should do in this situation? Share with them what you know God's word to say about your decision and ask them, are there any other verses or passages or principles that I haven't thought of that might apply to this decision. In other words, don't just ask him, what should I do? Just say, hey, what does the Bible say about decision-making so that I, I can make a good decision? Can you give me some instruction from God's word? Uh, what I'm saying is that seek counsel from God's word so that you can grow in making a godly decision. You're not just getting a bunch of opinions from a bunch of people. You're seeking for them to share with you biblical insight. Okay, a fifth step in decision-making is this. Number five, do what you want. That's, that sounds at first like what? Say, say what? Do whatever you want? I'm like, well, yeah, if you've done step one and step two and step three and step four, then you have a Christian liberty to make a decision that's not contradicting God's revealed word to do what you want. We read this in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean whatever you want, including sin. It means whatever you want that's truly honoring to God, which is what a true Christian wants anyway. They want to do what would be the right thing and give God glory. We read the same concept in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the ways of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, 
and the sight of your eyes, but know that all these things God will bring into judgment. So in Ecclesiastes, it's like, hey, you can follow your heart in this way, but just know God's going to judge you for that. So when he's saying follow your heart there, he's not saying literally whatever your heart wants. He's saying follow your desire. God's given you God-given desires that you can follow, but you need to check those desires with God's word because judgment is coming. 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, God gives us wisdom. He gives us enjoyment and, and we're able, as long as we're not violating any direct or indirect principle in scripture, then you can do what you want. You can live life to the fullest. You can enjoy life, but you know that you'll have to give an account to God for how you do what you do. Well, what if you're still trying to make a choice and you still can't decide what should you do? I would just encourage you to wait. If you're just still in a position where you're just like, man, I'm doing all those things and it's just still not clear to me. I know my wife and I will just keep praying until it gets clear. And I don't know exactly what to tell you other than at some point as we continue to pray, bring it before the Lord every day. That at some point, whether it's a day or a week or a month or a year, at some point it's like, okay, I believe God's now brought us to the point to we're in total agreement and this is now seems clear that we have the freedom to make this God-honoring decision, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to wait on him. We're going to trust him. We're going to, we're going to pray through Psalm 25, 5. It says, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. So when it comes to decision-making, I'm just trying to say, we want to make right decisions. We don't want to necessarily follow casting lots, though it's biblical, has its history in the Old Testament, was how God chose to use his sovereign will to reveal that it was going to be Matthias over Barsabbas. But in your life, I believe these other principles are more helpful as you consider biblical principles to help you make God-honoring decisions. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to look at this incredible text of scripture and just to think through what this looks like in our lives as we certainly want to learn and not deny the beauty of this sovereign revelation of God choosing uh, Matthias to replace Judas and just help us to be careful not to just to run down a similar path in a way that maybe you haven't fully instructed us as we look at the whole counsel of God's word. It's a true story. It's a narrative. It's something that was regularly done, but we also know, God, that your word is sufficient, that your spirit dwells inside of us, that we have a lot of freedom to make choices that are not in contradiction with your word, and yet we want to follow the direct and indirect principles of scripture in such a way that would help us make God-honoring decisions, trusting you as we live and walk by faith. Would you be glorified as we sing this last song and as we go about our day, God? We want to love you and worship you with all of our hearts. Thank you for choosing us to be your sons and daughters. We cry out to you now, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.